I love the story uh, of a group of uh, Christ followers who, uh, in the late 1800s, traveled from America over to uh, London, England. And their purpose was, their desire was to visit these two amazing churches that they had heard about and then go back home to their Christian brothers and sisters uh, in America and report on what they had found. And in the morning service that they went to this one great church, uh, the, the music was uh, inspirational. Uh, the, the preaching was uh, eloquent. And uh, they all felt that at the end of the, the meeting, they all came out, they gathered together, they talked about what they all kind of felt and experienced. And, and everybody said, you know, what a, what a great preacher. And what, and what a wonderful sermon. In fact, many of the, the group didn't want to uh, go to the second church. They wanted to come back that night to hear uh, the preacher do his next part in, in, in his sermon because it was just so good. But some of the group members reminded them that they had promised those back home that they would visit both churches and relate what they had found. So that night they went to the London Tabernacle, which, which is the uh, ministry of a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Ever hear of the name Charles Spurgeon? I was, he's called, he's called, yeah, he's called the Prince of Preachers, right? And uh, in the morning service, they said, what a wonderful, what a wonderful sermon. That night when they left the London Tabernacle, they said, what a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Savior. Of all the titles that we can ascribe to Jesus, and there were many, there were so many, Savior perhaps is the most important and perhaps the most precious to undeserving sinners who are in desperate need of being rescued. And I just, I just think that the, the title Savior, Jesus, in fact, the, the word Jesus means he shall save his people from their sins. It's a, it's a double uh, explanation of the mission of Jesus. So tonight I, w- I want to just say this. I, I love the, the passion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul's, Paul's desire was to make Christ known. He said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain, but for me to live is Christ. And what I believe that Paul meant by that was simply this, that, that for me, life is all about making Jesus Christ known to a broken world, revealing the, the person and the wonder of Jesus Christ. That's what my life is all about, and I, and I really appreciate what Paul said, and I believe that that is inspirational to others as well. See, I, I really believe with all my heart that the highest purpose of all preaching is to make Jesus Christ known, to reveal the person we call the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. You see, to know him, to trust in him, and to believe in him is the essence of eternal life. If you're not a follower of Jesus tonight, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here. And uh, one of the reasons why we make a distinction between saying if you're not a Christian, we, we, we kind of drop that because we, we understand that many people are born into Christian families. And just because you're born into a Christian family doesn't mean that you're a follower of Christ. So we, we kind of you know, try to narrow it down to are you following Jesus? You see, because it's not as a child, but as a, as a a mature adult or a reasoning child that you, you come to a place of accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. I say, it th- I say it this way. How many of you have been born in a hospital? 
Yeah, the majority of you probably, right? Just because you were born in a hospital doesn't make you a doctor. And just because you were born in a Christian home doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. It's when you make that commitment to Christ that that connection takes place. So I want to I want to just say that one of the most important issues really facing every single one of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or, or not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, one of the most important issues that, that you will ever face is, and let me, let me kind of pose it in the form of a question. How should we respond to God sending his son into the world to rescue the perishing? Because whether you know it or not, every single one of us will be a will be assessed and we, we, will be, we will be judged by how we respond to how God has sent his son or how we respond to how God has sent his son into the world for us. It's clear from John 3.16, one of the most well-known verses of scripture, probably uh, people that have never even read the word of God or read the scriptures have heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The motivation in God sending his son into the world to rescue those that are perishing is is clearly it's love. The father loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I want to kind of dismiss or or dispel maybe a misunderstanding. And and, and that is simply this, that God, Jesus did not die so that the father would love us. See, some people feel that that's the way that it is. No, no. Jesus died because the Father loved us. Jesus gave himself for us because of this great love that the Father had for us. And so the Father himself loves us. My wife, Kathy, uh, we started this ministry some 35, 36 years ago. And I want to thank you, sweetheart, for all of your faithfulness uh, in these years in serving the Lord as well. And I just want to say this. My, My wife... I could easily convince her to go to the movies with me if the plot of the movie has to do with a rescue. She loves a good rescue story. And the more daring the rescue, the more, the more difficult the rescue, the more dangerous the rescue. And you can count on it. It's certain that the greater the flow of tears will come, you know, when there's that great moment when the person or people are being uh, rescued. And, and, and I, I think that it's not just Kathy that loves a great rescue story. I think it's all of us. I think, I think the reason for that being is that we have been wired that way by God. It's in our spiritual DNA because God wants us to respond to him and to, and to re- respond in a way that we want to be rescued, that we know that we're in danger of perishing without, without a Savior. And therefore... I believe that it's our destiny. In fact, I want to say it this way. We were destined to be rescued by the greatest Savior from the greatest peril. We were destined to be rescued by the greatest Savior from the greatest peril. So because of that, there is no more important issue. This really is the most important issue that faces every single one of us, and it's how shall we respond to God's plan of salvation? Because, and here's the thing, is there is no other plan. Say to me, wait a minute, Pastor, that's kind of narrow-minded. Yeah, I know it is narrow-minded, but that's the way that it is. There is only one plan by which men must be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. And he is Savior. And I want us to look at a what I believe is a biblical definition, if I could use that phrase, a biblical definition, a scriptural definition of what a Savior is and what a Savior does. 
Because it's important for, for us to talk about the idea of Savior to understand what a Savior does and what a Savior is. And then I'd like to turn our attention uh, to one of the extraordinary days in the life of Jesus and, and see how he walked that out, fulfilling the, the very uh, definition of what a Savior does and what a Savior is all about. And I want to frame it in, in the present tense, not what Jesus did, but what Jesus does, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that he's still actively working in and among us, even right now, here and now. You probably know that Nazareth, you probably heard of Nazareth, the village there where Jesus grew up, where he, he kind of, you know, played in the street with the other kids, where he went to school, where, where everybody in the neighborhood knew, you know, this is the carpenter and the carpenter's son, you know. And uh, Jesus, at the age of 30, left Nazareth and began his ministry. And, and, and as his ministry began to explode with, with incredible miracles of casting out demons and healing uh, sick people and sick bodies. Uh, news about the, the working of the miracles of the carpenter's son got back to Nazareth. And now, now, now Jesus is, is on his way back to Nazareth, kind of like a homecoming, you know, without the band and without the fireworks, but, but it's kind of like a homecoming. And there's a, a level of excitement that, well, it was energetic or, or there was like electricity, if you will, in the air. And people were excited. And so here's the scene. It's the Sabbath and it's the synagogue and it was packed. And as a returning member now of the community, Jesus would have been afforded the honor of reading the scripture that day. And so the attendant of the synagogue hands Jesus the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus finds the place and he reads from what we know to be Isaiah chapter 61. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 4. And so he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. In that first phrase right there, or that the first few words, the spirit of the Lord, we have, we have the Father, Son, and Spirit in, in mention. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is upon the Lord, or the spirit of the Lord, or Yahweh is upon me, and Jesus being the second person or the Son of God mentioned in that verse, because, he says, and here's the cause, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And the word gospel means, as you probably know, good news. And the good news is being spoken to the poor. Now, the question is, who, who are the poor that we're talking about here? Is it, is it just the poor who are financially impoverished? No, no, it's, it's every single one of us. Because in our relationship with God, because of the fall of man, every single one of us is bankrupt before God. There, there is none that does good, the scripture says. There's not even one. And uh, all of our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. And because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we are all in a deficient way before God. We're bankrupt. But the good news is, and the reason why it's good news, is that Jesus Christ was sent to deal with this issue of our spiritual bankruptcy. In fact, the Apostle Paul frames it like this. He says, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich toward God. And so Jesus, in his coming, does something about our spiritual condition, and he's going to, he's going to remove from us the filthy rags, and he's going to clothe us with his own very righteousness. 
So Jesus says, the Spirit has empowered me. That's the word anointed. It means to, to equip. It means to empower. Uh, it, means to, it means to supply strength to me with good news. And, and if I could just borrow, uh, I was going to bring it down from my, from my office. I have a, a book written by John Piper. and I love the title. The title is God is the Gospel. God is the Gospel. In other words, God is the good news. Of all the wonderful things that God can bless us with and bestow up upon us, eternal life. I mean, come on. Could, could, you, could you think of anything better than eternal life? Yes, God himself. And God is the greatest gift that God gives to undeserving sinners, unreservedly in the person of Jesus Christ. To have God, think about this, and have nothing else is to have everything. But to have everything and to not have God is to not have anything now and forever. So he says, he had sent me to heal the brokenhearted. This is, this is his mandate. He had sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty or free those who are oppressed. One translation says, the opening of prison doors to those that were bound. Jesus, th- this is, he's declaring in the synagogue, now in his hometown in Nazareth. And, and, and what he's saying is, this is what I am about. This is my job description. This is what my heavenly father has sent me about. I am about my father's business. This is one of the most concise and one of the most comprehensive mission statements concerning what a savior is and what a savior does. And then I love, I love verse 20. Then he, Jesus, closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him like laser beams. Everybody is just staring at Jesus. They're wondering, what what could he mean by this? What what is he going to say next? How is he going to elaborate on on the scripture that he just has read? I, I want you to Imagine that you could have heard a proverbial pin drop at that moment. The, the amount of tension probably was so great in the synagogue at that moment. Everybody had their eyes fixed on him. You know, we were singing a little while ago. I, I lift my eyes to you. Uh, I set my eyes. Th- that is a major theme that, that only runs through the New Testament. It runs through the entire Bible. And it's the idea of of fixing our eyes on God. I will look into the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. And there are so many New Testament verses that deal with looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so I want to say this, that there is a look that brings life. There's a look that brings healing. If you've ever heard the story of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness where people were bitten, if they looked to the serpent, because that's what God provided, they could be healed and not die from the poison. There is a look that brings life. There's a look that brings healing. And something wonderful can take place with not these eyes, but with the eyes of our faith when we're able. And that's why, that's why it's so important. Now, these people are looking at Jesus, you know, and they're wondering, what is he going to say next? Then Verse 21 says this, then Jesus said today, this day, right now, right here and right now, today, this scripture, this prophecy, this prophetic utterance spoken 750 years before 
is fulfilled in your hearing today, right now. This is happening. I am the one whom the prophets have foretold. Now, I tell you, the reaction is so interesting that took place. And if you read the rest of the scenario of, of, of how it unfolded, it's really interesting. But, but there's a group of people that had the opinion that the words that Jesus said were gracious. And there were others in the group who were offended at Jesus. And, and there's these polarizing different views of Jesus. And some were offended because they knew Jesus. They grew up with him. They played ball with him. They went to high school with him. And, and so th they said, where had this man this knowledge or this wisdom? Isn't he the carpenter's son? And so some of them were offended. In fact, if you continue to read this, you discover because of the teaching of Jesus that day, some of the people got so angry with Jesus that they tried to literally push him over the hill upon which, upon which the city was built. There, there is no other person in all of human history, and it would have to be God come in the flesh, th th this one who is the perfect man, but he's also, he's also very God, who is so polarizing, that, and, there's, and there's nobody in all of human history who, has, who is as polarizing as Jesus was and is. You see, there are millions of followers of Jesus who love him and adore him and, and, and would, would gladly bow before him and declare that he is Lord. But there are also many who would despise and reject him and, and, and not think of him much at all. And, and, and how we respond to Jesus, this is what I said earlier tonight, that how we respond to Jesus is really, how, how we respond to God sending his son to rescue the perishing is the most important issue that we will ever have to face in our life. And, and I, I love the way C.S. Lewis framed our view of Jesus. See, C.S. Lewis, who is, who is speaking to intellectuals, who, who, who kind of said, well, we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We, we, we believe that Jesus was a, a good moral teacher. We like, you know, we, we like the golden rule and, and the Sermon on the Mount. We like what Jesus said, but we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's his response to that kind of attitude. Because there is no neutrality. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. All right, so... Listen to what he says. He says, the man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil of hell. You must make or take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. In other words, he's either a lunatic or something worse, or he is the Son of God. And we need to take our rightful place at his feet and declare that he is, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Why is it so important? Because every human being will be measured and assessed on how we respond to Jesus and what we believe about Jesus. He's a Savior whose mission is to seek and to save the lost. That hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's given his life as a ransom for many. And uh, he became a curse for us so that 
in becoming a curse for us, he removed the curse from us. And, and I'll talk more about that in our second part of this series. But for right now, I want, to, I want us to take a look at a day in the life of Jesus that walks out what, what we've just read from Luke chapter 4, that this is what a, a Savior is and this is what a Savior does. And, and see that in one day, an extraordinary day in the life of Jesus. So follow along with me to Mark chapter 5. Verse 21, you all with me tonight? Okay, three of you are, so praise God for that. Okay, it says in verse 21, when Jesus had gone across by boat to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, Lake of Galilee, a vast crowd gathered around him on the shore. This was a particular time in the ministry of Jesus when he was very popular, where people wanted to, wanted, wanted to touch or wanted to get to the one who is working all these miracles. Verse 22 says, The leader of the synagogue, whose name was Jairus, came and fell down before him. This is not an act of worship in falling before Jesus. This is an act of desperation. This is an act of humility. This is a leader of a synagogue who comes and who pleads with Jesus, pleading with him to heal his little daughter. She's at the point of death, he said in desperation. Come, Please come and place your hands on her and she will live. Now, I wanted to just stop here for a minute before I read the next verse because, because his faith was not great because he believed that Jesus, he believed that Jesus could heal his daughter who was at the point of death, but he believed that Jesus had to come to his house physically and had to physically put his hands on his little girl. Remember the centurion the Bible talks about who said to Jesus, don't bother coming into my house, just say the word. And Jesus commended him as a Gentile for having great faith. Well, well, well this man's faith was, was, was not as great. But that's important. Because we could learn something about Jesus as a Savior by how he responds to people who are in desperate need. And verse 24 simply says this, Jesus went with him, and the crowd pressed behind. In other words, Jesus didn't scold him. Jesus didn't reprove him. Jesus didn't tell him, you know what, you should have more faith. Jesus met him at the point and level of where he was at. As the leader of the synagogue, Jairus would have been a man of influence. He would have been a man of importance. He would have been a man who had been appointed by the elders of Israel to oversee the, the, the public worship in a local church or a local synagogue, if you will. And so he's risking a lot to come to Jesus because at this point, the religious leaders of Israel had labeled Jesus as being both a heretic and a troublemaker. And if anyone was to have anything to do with Jesus, if they were to acknowledge or say or confess that he was the Messiah, they would be put out of the synagogue. So here's a man who's putting his life on the line because of the desperation of his situation. His daughter was in desperate need on the point of death. And so I tell you what, when, when, when you have a situation like that, you know, the things that are really important really come into focus. And while his daughter's life was hanging by a thread, he didn't care about being excommunicated or kicked out of the synagogue. And then something completely unexpected takes place. As, he, as he's talking 
with Jesus and as he's and Jesus is on his way now they're on their route to his house right something completely unexpected takes place that had the potential of shattering this father's hope because while his little girl is barely hanging on Jesus stops he stops in his track with what seems to be a far less urgent matter Jesus don't don't you don't you know that every minute Counts. Don't you know that every moment matters because of my little girl? So here's what happened. In the crowd was a woman who had been sick for 12 years with a hemorrhage. She had suffered much from many doctors through the years and had become no better, but in fact was worse. She had heard all about the wonderful miracles Jesus did. And this is why she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his clothes. For she thought to herself, here's the eyes of faith that I was talking about a little while ago. This is not just a touch. This is the eyes of faith. For she thought to herself, if I could just touch his clothes or clothing, I, I will be healed. And sure enough, as soon as she had touched him, the bleeding stopped and she knew she was well. How did she know she was well? Well, not just the bleeding stopped, but, but she felt power course through her body. She felt virtue leave the body of Jesus and enter into her body. This is not the first time that someone was healed because they touched Jesus. In fact, Mark and Matthew both record that as many as touched him were made perfectly whole. But there's a, there's a difference between a touch and a touch when the eyes of faith are involved. Remember I said a little while ago, there is, a, there is a look that brings healing. And I said that a little while ago, but I want to just mention that, that fellow that I mentioned in the beginning of this message, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, interestingly, before his conversion, before he, he gave his heart and his life to Christ, he had come under a great conviction and, and, and had no rest or no, no peace in his soul. He felt, he felt condemnation and he felt guilt and he felt shame for the things that he did in his life. And, and he was going to church after church and he found no rest or no, no peace for his soul. Then one snowy morning, he, he ducked into a small Methodist church. It was about 15 people in attendance at the time. And in fact, the, the, the preacher or the, the pastor of the church wasn't there that day because of the weather. And the shoemaker, the shoemaker was the one who filled in for the pastor that day and read from a verse of scripture in Isaiah 45, verse 22. And it was this, look unto me and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. Look unto me. And suddenly something just kind of clicked. The light bulb went on in his heart that there is a look that produces life. Look unto me and be saved. And then on that day, Charles Spurgeon found the, the peace that he longed for and gave his heart and his life to Christ because I said, there's a look that brings life. I want you to think about this as I ask you this question. What about you? Have, have you looked to Jesus as Savior? Have you, have you considered just how wonderful he is? And I want you to know that it's not the greatness of faith that is the issue. Rather, it's the greatness of Jesus as the Savior who saves. I prayed with a young woman today at the end of the service, and, and, I, and, I, and I told her, it's not, it's not your great faith that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. And brought her peace as well.
Mark chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus realized that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched me? Now, now, now get the picture, right? I mean, just the 12 disciples would have been a crowd, you know, but, but there's the 12 disciples, and there's all kinds of people, and they're all wanting to touch Jesus, and then Jesus suddenly turns around and says, somebody touched me, you know? It's for that reason that verse 31 says his disciples said, now Luke tells us that it was Peter. Peter's the guy who's always putting his foot in his mouth, right? Peter says, or, or, or the disciples say to him, all this crowd is pressing around you and you ask who touched you? You know, like to me, that is a snarky question. I like that word snarky. My wife says, I've been snarky all my life. And it's true. Sounds a bit snarky to me. So, so if there was ever a time when, when Peter, you should go to the back of the room, this was one of those occasions because he's always putting his foot in his mouth. But I suppose that one of the reasons why Peter and the others were so impatient was because the little girl's life was on the line. And, 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 and Jesus is stopping and asking who touched me. And, and it seems like just a waste of time. How silly that Jesus, you would, you would want to know who touched you when all these people are thronging you. But Jesus knows the difference between a casual touch and a touch that came out of desperation and a touch that came out of faith. And so verse 33 says, Then the frightened woman, trembling, here's this woman who's shaking, at the realization of what had happened to her, she came and fell at his feet and told him what she had done. Why is she trembling? Why is she so afraid? Is he going to take the healing away from her? Is he going to rebuke her for being so presumptuous to touch him in that manner? Is he going to scold her? Because tell you what, she's violated the law here because in a, in a ceremonially unclean way, she shouldn't even be out in public, but she's, she's touched Jesus. Has she made him now ceremonially unclean? And is he going to rebuke her? And I love verse 34 because he says to her daughter, he affectionately and he tenderly speaks to her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He reaffirms that what she did was good and he commends her faith. He says, go in peace, heal of your disease. Rather than scold her, he, 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 he says to her what no other person in the in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John received the, the acknowledgement that, that she's a daughter. Because to tell you what, Jairus wasn't the only daughter who was in desperation. But she was as well. And Jesus lovingly and tenderly meets her need. I love verse 35. It says, while he was still speaking, get the drama of all this. All this is taking place, you know, just in a, in a, one thing right after another. And while he was still talking to her, messengers arrived from Jairus' house with the news, bad news, that, this, that it was too late, that his daughter was now dead and there was no point for Jesus coming now. Because in their mind, Jesus was just another rabbi among many rabbis in Israel. But Jesus is more than just a teacher. and He's more than just a man. He's God come among us. But Jesus ignored their comments and he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just trust me. 
He reassures this dad. In, in, in the moment that he needs him, while, he, while his faith may have been sinking, and he says, don't be afraid. I don't know if Jesus did this, but I would imagine that he did. You know, like, get your eyes on me, son. Just look at me right here. Remember, there's a, a look that brings life. I, I would have loved if Jesus did that. I don't know if he did or not. But I love the comment that this uh, next uh, commentary has. Uh, he says this. He says, the father could have tempted, could have, could have been tempted to be resentful of Jesus lingering with a semi-sick but living woman when he had a dying daughter with whom Jesus had a prior appointment. Jesus instantly intercedes, don't be afraid, only believe. Jesus, as if it were, places his arms underneath the falling father to pick him up. Jesus instantly and pastorally supports the father's sinking faith by telling him not to do what faith is so constantly in danger of doing in the light of realities, to be afraid, to fear. And Jesus makes the man's responsibility simple. Just sustain the courage that brought you to me in the first place. Believe that I'm able to attack death as well from the rear as from the front. Just believe me. I'll not let you down. In 45 years of serving the Lord, I can't tell you how many times I've heard those same encouraging words to me. Don't be afraid. Just trust me. I'll not let you down. You will not be disappointed. In fact, I just want to, I want to encourage anybody here tonight who, who may be feeling like on the border of, you feel like you may be let down, do not, do not be disappointed. You will not be ashamed of Jesus. He'll not let you down. See, that's the kind of Savior we have. That's why he is a wonderful Savior. Because he not only, he not only meets us because, because, you know, in spite of our weakness. Let me say it that way. No, he, he meets us because of our weakness. He came because of our weakness. He came because of our many flaws and our faults and because of our sinfulness. It's not like he was surprised by any of this. No, he's the Lamb of God from before the foundation of the world. And verse 37 says this. He permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and he saw, here's that word, tumult. I hate that word, tumult. The first time I read that, I said, tuna melt. <laughs> it's not a tuna melt. It's a tumult. It's a hard word to say. Say it fast three times. Tumult, tumult, tumult. And those who wept and wailed loudly. Uh, you know what? Those who wept and wailed loudly, they, these were professional mourners. They had them in, the, in those days. They, they, they went around with flutes, and they played the flute, and they... And they, and they cried, and it was all for show. It was all for the expression. It was a cultural thing about, about expressing sorrow for the passing of someone. And so here they are. And when Jesus came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Wait a minute, t time out. Jesus, don't you know the child really did die? Yeah, he, he, he knew that. He, he wasn't making a mistake. But, but to Jesus, sleeping and death, really one and the same thing. It's no more traumatic or final than falling asleep. It's no more permanent to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, he's the author of life. He's the, he's the prince of life. 
And in his presence, death has lost its sting. And death has lost its power. I love verse 40. It says, and they ridiculed him, or they laughed him to scorn, one translation says. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, and he entered where the child was laying or lying. Then he took the child by the hand. Now, I got, I got to tell you, he took the child by the hand. He, he fulfilled this father's request. He didn't have to do this. In fact, he didn't even have to go to Jairus' house. He could have just said the word. In fact, he does something very similar to that in John chapter 4 with a nobleman's son who was sick. And he just said, he just said go, your, your son as well. I mean, he spoke at the gravesite of Lazarus who had been dead for four days, and he said, Lazarus, come out. Had he not said Lazarus, all the graves would have opened. He qualified that by saying, Lazarus, come out. Jesus could have just simply spoken the word. But why, but why does he take the child by the hand? Because that's where the weakness of the father's faith was. And Jesus meets us at the point and level of our greatest need. And he said, little girl, I say to you, arise or wake up. And immediately the girl arose and walked, and she was 12 years of age. And they were all overcome with great amazement. They were blown away. She's 12 years old. How old was, or how many years did the, did the woman with the hemorrhage suffer? 12 years. Do you think it's a coincidence that this child lived as long as this woman who was also desperate and in need of healing? I, 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 don't, I don't think there's a coincidence here. I think it was orchestrated by the divine providence of our Heavenly Father. But notice this. It says, but he commanded them, that is the parents, strictly not that no one should know it. And he said that something should be given her to eat. I mean, that, this is amazing. If, G, if Jesus was a showman, you know, if he, if he was all about, you know, putting on a show, he would have said to the people, watch and see what I will do. But he didn't, he didn't say that. That's because healing to Jesus is not a show. It's not a display. It's his ministry. It's the mandate that he had received from his heavenly father. And then, and then he said, give her something to eat. I asked my wife on the way over driving this morning to church. I said, why do you think Jesus said give, give her something to eat? And, and she wisely told me, she said, she said because, because if you've been sick, eating is one of the last things that you want to do. But when you can eat again is the evidence or proof that you're well. And that wanted to be the solidifying of that miracle for that parent. That not only is she alive, but the very thing that that took her life in the first place has been restored. You know, this, this healing, these two healings, side by side as we examine them, you know, one of the things about this, I, I believe that the motivation is absolutely clear. It was the love of Christ and it was his compassion for hurting people. And we learned something about the nature of the Savior by looking at these two miracles. We also discovered this, that faith derives its power not from the energy of the person who believes, but rather from the efficacy of God himself. So let me, let me share with you my, my bottom line or my takeaway tonight, and it's simply this, that it's the act, 
It's not the act of faith that's the cause of the miraculous. It's the Savior himself who's the object of our faith. It depends upon the greatness of Jesus, not the greatness of our faith. Because, because we were destined to be, to be rescued by the greatest Savior from the greatest peril. So let me just kind of wrap this up and, and come to a close. And, and the idea that, that here we're dealing with sickness and we're dealing with death and we're dealing with sorrow. And, and you know what? Every single one of us will at, at some point or another have to deal with the issue of somebody that we love being separated from them. And, and, and death brings pain. It brings sorrow. But you know, there's something far worse than physical death. And, and that is spiritual death. There's something far worse than this physical death. It's called, it's called the second death. And to be eternally separated from God. This is the very reason that Jesus Christ came to rescue us from such a great peril as eternal death. Recently, there was a group of Ebola workers who went to a remote village in Africa with the intent, the hope of, of wanting to instruct or, or to educate people on how to prevent the spread of Ebola. And the volunteers were seen spraying or using a disinfectant spray. And somehow it became rumored that that was the very cause of the disease itself. As a result of that, the mob believed that and they rushed upon these workers. And when it was all said and done, nine of those volunteers, nine of those workers were killed and their bodies were thrown into a latrine. The, the killers murdered in cold blood the very people who came to save them. In a very real sense, it was our sin that murdered Jesus and sent him to the cross. But it was the very reason why he came. This is not an accident. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from before the foundation of the world. I, I think that Mark wants us to have the perspective in putting these two miracles, you know, side by side. He wants us to have radical faith. He wants us to believe that, that Jesus is able to not only heal sick bodies, but he's able even to overcome the power of death. But, but, but let me say this. There's something that even supersedes those two miracles. And it's that Jesus is the only one who is able to cure the incurable disease of sin. And Jesus is the only one that is able to, to cure the incurable issue of death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only means by which men must be saved. And, and, and therefore, as a result of that, if you've come tonight and you're not really sure what you believe about Jesus, I want to tell you once again, it is the most important issue that, that every single one of us face. As believers or as, as followers of Jesus or as, as those that would be followers of Jesus, how we respond to God's plan of rescue will determine where we will spend eternity. I hope that every single person here tonight has made that decision to follow Christ. I know many of you have, and, and as a result of that, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that he died for your sins. And as a result of that, you too can have eternal life. 
when a person turns away from what they once were to, to hope in what they can become in Christ. That's the beginning of eternal life that starts right now, here and now. I'd like to pray uh, for some that maybe fall into that category tonight. Maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you would like to receive Christ as your Savior. I'd like to just kind of lead you in prayer uh, for that very purpose. It's not magic words. I say this all the time. It's, it's the look of faith. It's the heart that reaches out. It's, the, it's the, the heart that believes unto salvation. So, Father, I just lift up this meeting tonight. I thank you for the opportunity to share the Word of God. And, and Father, as, as I pray, I pray the Holy Spirit would search through uh, the aisles tonight if there's one or two or three or more, however, that needs to make a profession of faith. I pray that they would just simply say something like this. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I believe that you died for me and that you rose again so that I might have eternal life. I look with the heart and eyes of faith to receive all that you provided and all that you did. Now, now, Father, I, I pray for everyone else as well. If anyone else just needs that encouragement tonight to know that we have a wonderful Savior, one who is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, who, who is a great and a merciful high priest, who's sympathetic toward us right here, right now, tonight, and who wants to meet the needs of your heart. So, Father, we thank you tonight, uh, and we just pray that, that we would walk out of this place knowing just how awesome and how wonderful you are as a Savior. I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we worship one more time tonight. God bless you.